The billionaire space race is on. In the past two weeks, Sir Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos soared into the heavens on their rockets and for a few minutes floated in microgravity. To the next generation of dreamers, if we can do this, just imagine what you can do. The dawn of a commercial space sector. That's today on Brainstorm, the podcast about how tech is reshaping our world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brainstorm. I'm Michal Avram. And I'm Brian O'Keefe. And, and welcome back, Michal. I hope you enjoyed your time off. I was wondering, though, I'm not sure where you went. Were you in space? You didn't see me waving from up there. It was right by Jeff Bezos. Come on. Yeah, I figured you <laughs> palled around with all the billionaire astronauts. Oh, yeah. So anybody who's been paying attention to the news at all over the past week or two knows that Jeff Bezos, who's the founder and until recently the CEO of Amazon, was up in space. Richard Branson, the founder of Virgin Galactic, was up in space. And it just seems like, you know, where did this come from? Why is this all happening at once? But it's actually been a long process to get here because Bezos founded his company, Blue Origin, back in 2000. Branson founded Virgin Galactic in 2004, and Elon Musk, the man behind Tesla, is also the founder of SpaceX, which he started in 2002. So these folks have been working on this for years and years and years. Yeah, Brian, it turns out that sending a rocket into space is really hard stuff. It's not like developing the latest mobile app, right? And there have been some really spectacular failures along the way as these guys have moved towards their goal. Virgin Galactic Spaceship 2 crashed during a test flight in 2014, and it killed the co-pilot. And then just earlier this year, several test flights for SpaceX's Starship, those failed pretty spectacularly too, ended in chaos and flames. And again, we've just got to work on that landing a little bit. But we'll I think the question through. here for a lot of us is why? Why are they even doing this in the first place? Is it, you know, capitalist decadence? Like it's their their lifelong dream. You know, a lot of kids want to be an astronaut, right? This is their chance to do it. They have the money for it. Or is there a real business opportunity here? Yeah, ego or visionary ambition? Both maybe? They have the amount of capital that governments dream to have. So on the one hand, I think it's honestly just like, they just have nothing else to do. Look at Elon Musk. He's he's created a new industry of electric cars. He's kind of like solving solar panels. Jeff Bezos owns all of distribution for any kind of product you could ever want. And I think there is one part of it that's just like, what do we do with this money? Let me do something cool. Let's go to space. <laughs> like, I think, I, I don't know. I think people are always like, what's the business case for space? Nobody knows what the business case for space is. I mean, like, what do you, how would you know? That was Mahek Sarang. She's a research associate with the Harvard Business School and works at MIT's Media Lab. And I think she makes an interesting point here. You know, when she says that nobody knows what the business case for space is, you know, if you uh, listen to SpaceX, they're, they're doing a lot of business, taking satellites up into orbit. There's a lot of kind of space work going on. There's a lot of private companies that are pitching business models and getting a lot of venture capital. But if you step back from it and think like, 
what is really the long-term opportunity, nobody knows. Space is the final frontier, after all, as Captain Kirk would say. And as you said, there's already a space economy that is right there under our noses. And in 2019, the sector generated at least $350 billion in revenue. It's mostly satellites, like you said, Brian. So for internet connectivity, for national security, you can observe the Earth's surface and learn all sorts of things about climate change uh, using high-resolution imagery that's coming from these satellites. So there is not just a lot of opportunity, but a lot of opportunity that's already being unlocked. You know, longer term, Branson wants to have Earth orbiting hotels, which sounds awesome. That is not what I did on my vacation. Elon Musk wants to have a permanently occupied base on the moon and be sending people to Mars someday. All of this, you know, this like space exploration and settling in space, that is way out. But we're starting to see that, you know, this crazy long term vision is actually starting to be realized. We're seeing all these people who are spending, you know, $50 million to go to space. And I think that is a huge indication that the market exists. And as that cost comes down, I think there will only be more and more people who will want to go. Once you put people somewhere, the economy exists, right? It's that when the people are there, services needed to be, need to be provided. And we are ingenious people. We figure out things to do and we will figure out what to do. It's pretty mind-blowing to think about going to Mars and to imagine a day when we've got colonies on other planets and we're just kind of shooting off into space on a regular basis. And also to just imagine the opportunities, the business opportunities that that's going to enable. Yeah, that vision of getting people to Mars and colonizing these other planets in our own galaxy is pretty cool in kind of a Hollywood movie way, and hopefully we'll get there at some point. But Mahek Sarang of Harvard and MIT says the limitations that we're also familiar with on Earth in terms of science and innovation, you know, a lot of times don't apply in space. And thus, there's limitless possibilities for what we can do right here in Earth's orbit. You know, when we build on Earth, we have to create support structures to do the things that we want to do. But in space, you kind of have the ability to build huge symmetric objects without worrying about buckling or loads or things like that. You know, there's a company called Made in Space that has extruded the longest freestanding structure in space. And you can build these things that like trusses that go on for kilometers in space just because you don't have to worry about anything buckling in under gravity. So the idea that we can create these like enormous, enormous structures is pretty exciting. And being able to do it in space rather than building on Earth and then launching into space is a huge shift for the industry. And that's kind of on the horizon. This all sounds pretty far out, Brian. It does. But before all this innovation in space can really blast off, <laughs> uh, you got to get people up there and you have to have the infrastructure to house them and house the facilities. You know, I think most people know that we have an international space station up in orbit, right? But again, the private sector is coming in. I spoke with Christian Mender, the director of in-space manufacturing and research at Axiom Space. Axiom Space is one of these private companies that's attracting a lot of investment. And its project is to build the first private space station. So their plan is to have this up there starting in 2024. They're going to build it out piece by piece. And eventually, when the International Space Station is decommissioned, Axiom Space Station will be there to enable all kinds of new efforts in space. So what have we learned about having a space station 
What's going to you know be better about this space station than our first generation partnership version of this? Well, there's a couple things. What the space station was built for was to do research. And over the last 20 years of the International Space Station's existence, there's been a tremendous amount of insight that's come out of the research that's been done on the space station. And it really comes back to all of the opportunities that a microgravity environment provides. Microgravity for the layperson is really weightlessness. It's the idea that a space station moving fast enough around the planet is effectively free falling at the same rate that it would that gravity is pulling it back towards Earth. So it's in a constant state of free fall. It creates this weightlessness condition. But when you can take gravity out of the equation, you fundamentally change the way physics behave in space. And what that allows you to do is do a couple things. You can explore the way fundamental forces uh, behave differently, but you can also you can also potentially manufacture or research things in a different way. You're talking about basically taking gravity out of the, the equation there. Can you give me an example of how that enables a different kind of research, you know, that might yield uh, different kinds of insights than the research you'd be able to do on Earth? I'm trying to picture, you know, how this would work. Maybe let's give an example of how fluids behave in space. Maybe you've had a glass of tea at a restaurant and they've overfilled it to the point where you can actually see the liquid poking over the top of the glass. We all know from learning that that surface tension, for example, is holding holding that tea in place. But if you were to pick up that glass and you were to turn it over, obviously gravity is going to pull all that water out of the glass. But in space, if you were to pick up that glass with all that surface tension and turn it over, surface tension is going to hold that liquid in the glass. It won't, quote unquote, spill. And so when you think about that, how that can affect research, that's first off more biologically relevant phenomenon if you can imagine cells floating around in your body. So you can do a lot of things in the life science arena because you can create environments in microgravity that are very, very similar to in-body conditions. When you think about manufacturing, if you imagine putting a number of marbles into that water glass on Earth, they all sink to the bottom very quickly because of a phenomenon simply called, it's gravity, but it's also sedimentation. In a microgravity condition, those marbles stay suspended inside that fluid, inside that water. And what that means when you think about creating, for example, a new metal alloy that has very different weighted particles in the mixture, on Earth, you would have a settling effect where some of that heavier metal would settle to the bottom of the alloy. You would get a very uneven distribution of that metal without effective mixing and those kinds of things. In space, you can actually create opportunities where you can get a much more even mixture and perhaps discover some new materials with new properties. There's a lot of opportunity in stem cells and regenerative medicine. You can use phenomenon like layer-layer deposition, where you add layers of material one molecule at a time. You can do that much more evenly and uniformly in space, which one company, for example, is using to develop implants that will ultimately go into the back of your retina and replace your site for certain diseases. So there's sounds like a million different kind of possibilities here. For Axiom, you know, you're a private company that's been raising capital. You're a unicorn, so you're worth every billion dollars. Are you in talks with a whole range of companies in different industries? Like, which industries do you think will be uh, moving first on this kind of opportunity? Well, I, I think uh, the immediate opportunities are in the material science fields and in the life science fields. Life science fields in particular because they create opportunities for low mass, low volume, but high dollar products, product lines. 
I think material create nearer term opportunities in terms of things that you can make in space, but that may be that the price point of launch will ultimately need to come down before you can close some of those business cases. So what is the business model going to be for this? What do you envision for that? Right now, you're obviously raising capital, starting to build the the space station, starting to build your operations. Once you have this up and running, will you just be renting space on the space station? Do you participate in the upside from you know, uh, breakthrough science that occurs, or is it all of the above? How is it going to work? Yeah, I think it's an all of the above model, and I think that's a, a good observation. We have first we diversify our revenue streams for a commercial space station. We we have government agencies as customers that look are looking for training facilities for professional astronauts. We have private astronauts as customers looking for life defining experiences. We have research and manufacturers like we've talked about. There's space exploration organizations that want to use space to test technologies and systems before they go to, for example, Moon and Mars. There's new opportunities in media and filmmaking. And then lastly, we can use the platform sort of as a port or hub in space to offer a lot of different services in orbit, whether that be things like on-orbit data storage, uh, cyber secure edge computing, where you're using, you're using space as a means to either secure data or actually process data in space that's coming from space. And also as a, a base in some ways to do things like satellite assembly satellite repair and satellite refueling, if you can find ways to move those vehicles back and forth. It sounds like you're going to be building a really, really big space station (laughs) to be able to accommodate all of that manufacturing, research, edge computing, and space tourists. It sounds like a massive, massive structure or or series of them. The, The structure itself, you'd be surprised what you can accommodate in a module. Our space station itself initially is going to be about four to five modules in size. It's roughly equivalent to, I would say, the volume of a three to four bedroom home. Of course, you have to think about the fact that you get to use all of your three-dimensional space, right? In a terrestrial research lab, you have benches on the floor. You can't be sitting on the ceiling doing research at the same time. So you you optimize your space in, in that way in that you can work on all surfaces. And if you ever watch some of the videos from the space station, you often see crew uh, with heads touching each other while one person's working on the quote unquote ceiling and someone else is on the floor. So 10 years from now, should we imagine that up in orbit, there's going to be Axiom modular space stations and rivals, uh, you know, private companies that have their own operations up there? Is it going to be crowded with competition? I think 10 years is a bit short on that horizon, but I would tell you uh, easily 20 to 30 years out, I would see a lot of different infrastructure players in space uh, for sure. Axiom station, I think, will be expandable, you know, into the the, uh, 2030s, but Beyond that, I think we'll be have to be in a place where we're building bespoke capabilities for bespoke customers. You know, whether that mm-hmm. be a, a new factory for a new manufacturer or a, a new training ground for a new uh, space agency in an, another country or a, a new laboratory for a research company wanting to do uh, sustained research in space. And so I, I see that expansion happening over, I would say, 10 to 20, more, more like the 20 year horizon. So, Brian, where is NASA in all of this? We haven't really talked about them yet. And that used to be, you know, the end all and be all for anything space travel related. And when I was a kid, by the way, the reason we moved to the United States is that my dad worked at NASA at Moffett Field out here. He was an aerospace engineer. And I just remember it being so cool, you know, and that's where all the action was. So 
What's going on today with NASA? Yeah. And, you know, when we were kids growing up, like the space shuttle launches were like this national, international event and everybody was was watching what NASA was doing. And it does seem right now like all the energy is in the private sector, right, with SpaceX. But uh, according to NASA, they're not worried about that. In fact, they're happy to see all this activity. I spoke with Peter Hughes, the center chief technologist for NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, and he told me, you know, up in orbit, the more the merrier. What we're witnessing is an increased capability and competition with the startups. There's a large number of capabilities that are available commercially that weren't available a few decades ago. They've primarily been addressing kind of like the launch costs and bringing increasing reliability and bringing down dramatically the cost the access to space. And this is an exciting time because NASA has kind of helped tee up these capabilities and made investments in that so we can continue our mission to explore the Earth from the vantage point of space, explore the nearby planetary systems and understand what's going on deeper in space. In addition to exploring our nearest planetary body, the moon, and put the first woman and the next man on the lunar surface by 2023. So let's just dive into that a little bit, what NASA's goals are. Because, you know, if you go back, we had obviously the the space race in the 60s, and then we had the shuttle program. I think it's been 10 years now since the shuttle program ended. Reset for us what NASA's goals are and what the U.S. you know objectives are, both with the moon and Mars and Venus and beyond. We are playing a critical role as we return to the moon to be able to lead in the scientific endeavor of space exploration on these planetary bodies. We at Goddard are most focused on the scientific instruments and the scientific capabilities as we go there so we can live and operate on the lunar surface and harness the resources there, you know, extracting the ice, the water, and, you know, splitting it apart for the hydrogen and oxygen. I, I will tell you, you know, I've been in the agency for 36 years and I think it's, you know, it's just getting more and more exciting what NASA's role is to define these exciting missions, to engage the commercial sector, to leverage their capabilities and allow us to, to take on bigger and bolder, more complex missions. You know, this is the beauty of this whole entrepreneur-driven space race. Elon has is not just motivated by the technical challenges of the launch. You know, he's making it more economical, more reliable, true, but he's in the business to do something much more transformative for mankind. He wants to expand civilization throughout the solar system and beyond. And that is just so big. And that's forward thinking, I think is just amazing. And we're cheering him on. I'm cheering him on as a, as a citizen, even as a NASA employee, I think what he's doing and what these VCs are doing are tremendous. So, I mean, that's really interesting that I'm hearing that you feel like the enthusiasm and the ambition coming from the likes of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson is maybe helping NASA set its goals a little higher. That's true. And we still have critical roles to expand our knowledge of Earth and what's going on with the climate change, to understand what's going on in the near planetary systems. We have our targets set for Mars, but we also have recent missions announced where NASA is returning to Venus to understand what happened to that planetary body 
explore whether there used to be bodies of water on it. Try to understand more what happened to Martian atmosphere. Try to understand these other adjacent planets will give us more insights what might happen with our own planet Earth. The key is that we're identifying these key technology challenges and we're trying to prioritize and put the resources in there so we could develop the technologies and reduce the risk of these technologies so they work. And it's tough. Space is unforgiving. These technologies are very complex, as we've witnessed with you know some of the failures over time. What's the holy grail technology that you're trying to crack that would be at the top of your priority list that would really open up new frontiers? In my world, it's more the miniaturization of the instrumentation, the spacecraft, and having a large number of these space hats, the, the platforms working together collectively in very intelligent form, trying to react to science phenomenology or have a focused measurement of things we didn't even anticipate. When you meet someone at a party and you say that, you know, you have this senior role at NASA and they ask you, why do we need NASA? Like, what's your, how do you explain the urgency of NASA now in 2021? Now that we have a lot of commercial capabilities, NASA continues to play a key role in identifying some of the emerging technologies and identifying the new capabilities for the next generation mission beyond that time horizon of the commercial sector. Things that are maybe too expensive, too challenging, technically challenging, to get our arms around that risk posture and the capabilities so we can leverage them for these bigger, bolder missions. We also play a vital role for these very large space observatories, these large telescopes. We're all very familiar with Hubble Space Telescope and its success over the last 31 years. We're about to launch its successor, the James Webb Space Telescope, this fall with a much larger primary mirror with infrared instruments that allow us to peer deeper into the dust clouds to understand the phenomena that's going on there. And we know that whenever we go into these, the unknown and explore more, we discover things that we didn't anticipate. When we launched Hubble, we didn't anticipate a bunch of these things that we now have greater understanding of, like dark energy, galaxy evolution, further confirmed exoplanets. And it's these type of discoveries that drive our science. So, Brian, how do you feel about zero gravity? Are you one of those people who always wanted to be an astronaut as a kid? I feel a little un-American saying this, but I can't really say that I really genuinely wanted to be an astronaut. I actually grew up two hours away from Huntsville, Alabama, you know, Rocket City, where a lot of the early space rockets were developed and they have a cool space camp there and I never went to space camp. Maybe that's my problem. But I do love the ambition of it. I love watching movies about space. I love reading about it. So I'm, I'm behind it, but I'm just going to be here on Earth supporting it. Just watching it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the closest I've gotten to space or to really, you know, itching to go up there is eating a lot of astronaut ice cream for some reason. But yeah, you know, I think the bigger question here is just to, to bring it back to the billionaires for a second. Are they just are they living out this lifelong dream? You know, were they those kids who wanted to go to space and now they have the money and, the, you know, the, the wherewithal to do it? Or should we really be celebrating them for working towards bringing the cost down for something that could be really crucial to humankind someday? You know, I'm going to lean towards celebrating it. We can ridicule them a little bit and celebrate them at the same time. I mean, you know, speaking of billionaires, 
Peter Thiel, another billionaire Silicon Valley character, you know, was lamenting a few years ago that we don't have any real transformative technology. We're just making apps. And this is the kind of real push the edge of human innovation that inspires everybody, you know, whether or not it directly leads to benefits. But I think like we can start to imagine what's the next dimension that, that humankind can reach, you know, the next kinds of things that we can invent that we can't even really imagine now because we have to get out there and try it. Okay, so Brian, I actually have a dad joke for you today. Wait a minute. Dad jokes are my territory. <laughs> All right. What does the astronaut call her former boyfriend? I can't get it. I don't know. Her SpaceX. <laughs> You're welcome. All right. That's it for today. We'll be back next week with more talk on how tech is reshaping our world. The Brainstorm Podcast is a production of Fortune Media. Our show is written and produced by Wyatt Orm and edited by Nicole Vergala. Music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds NYC. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. <laughs>